Together, there's going to be a celebration, and uh, I'm thankful for those of you who are here. Uh, I do want to recognize a couple of folks. Uh, Tim Miller and his family are sitting here. It's the first time I've ever called him Tim. I hope he is all right with that. This is Colonel Miller. He's the commanding officer of Marine Corps Air Station, Buford, and he's been my boss for the last couple of years. Tremendous blessing to uh, serve in the military under a strong believer. His family is uh, very actively involved in ministry in a good Bible-believing church up in Buford, South Carolina. There in the back, we've got Gunnery Sergeant Esquibel and his family, very, very uh, prominent members and uh, folks involved in our chapel ministry. Chaplain Steve uh, Shelmeski and his family. Don't try to pronounce that name. You're not going to get it right. It took us practicing for several months before he arrived, before we could figure it out. We gave up, and we decided to just call him S-13 or something like that. And, uh, and uh, so I, I've resolved to call him Chapski. So it seems to be a term of endearment. This morning, you know, I've got to tell you, I've got mixed emotions. I didn't expect that I was going to wake up and, uh, today and have mixed emotions. But again, I don't want this to be about me this morning. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. You may notice in your notes in the bulletin that we've listed it as love the church, but it should be love people. That's what it's all about. And I want to direct your attention to the book of 3 John this morning. Which 3 John, in my opinion, holds a prominent biblical position in the sense that it conveys to us a good biblical understanding of what it means to project or manifest a sense of sanctity of life. I think sometimes when we turn this into a political battle, we lose sight of what it means to God to give us sanctity of life. And I want to share some of this with you this morning. I want you to follow along with me, and I want to tell you I'm going to go through a lengthy introduction. Uh, Before we get into the context, I'm going to try to get us all out of here at time. But there is a problem when we approach the writings of John. John is very short and succinct in his writings. Now I want you to turn over to John chapter 21 with me real quickly, and let me show you what I mean. In comparison to the other biblical writers, John simply gets to the point, and what happens then is a lot of the details about context are left out, and sometimes it's difficult to identify what John is dealing with in the background. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't extrapolate biblical truth from his writings, but sometimes it's a little bit more difficult to understand. If you'll notice in the very last verse, the book of John, John chapter 21, the Word of God says this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were, would be written. And what John is saying there is, listen, I didn't try to write all of the details about Jesus' life. In fact, I'm convinced that if we did write everything, you just simply couldn't do that. But if you'll notice the very next verse of the Bible, Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, notice what Luke says. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. 
In other words, from Luke's perspective, as the Holy Spirit was inspiring Luke and using Luke's personality, his spiritual gift, Luke was convinced that it was his responsibility to give Theophilus everything and every detail about Jesus' life, where John didn't quite see it that way. This is a good example of how that the Holy Spirit used the personalities as they varied from Scripture writer to Scripture writer. But what it leaves us with is with John's writing, oftentimes it's so to the point that we struggle trying to understand exactly what the context is. Now, we often prescribe this book, as you know, to new believers to read, and I don't want to discourage that in any way, but here's a problem that I think we have. We fail to see that this is a book we need to come, or these books, these writings of John, are writings that we need to come back as we're progressing and maturing in our Christian life. Paul reminded the Corinthians, if you will recall, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he told them that they were babes in Christ and he was feeding them with milk because they were not yet to the point where they could eat meat. And you see, that's what the progressive nature of spiritual maturity is all about. God is challenging us to take in milk as new believers, but he doesn't want us to stay there. And so as we progress in our spiritual growth and we begin to develop a diet, spiritually speaking, that's able to consume more difficult doctrine. And I want to challenge you that that's the time that we need to come back to the book of John. The book of John and the three epistles in the book of Revelation are filled with truths that I've got to tell you, if you miss them, you're going to miss some vital aspects of your Christian life. One of the things that Jimbo and I have realized about both of us is that we profoundly believe that in a believer's life in the New Testament, you must identify how the Holy Spirit works in your life. I'm so thankful that Jimbo reminds me constantly of the fruits of the Spirit. And I've got to tell you that the thing that I am so enthused about is when I see the study of spiritual gifts, which I'm convinced is the way the Holy Spirit simply manifests Himself through your life. And when we come to an understanding of that, and we especially come to an understanding from the book of John about this, we begin to see this doctrinal truth as a mature believer and make application to our life. Let me show you something in way of context development in John chapter 7. So turn there with me real quickly. John chapter 7. And I want you to notice in verse 37, the Word of God says this. John, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of the heart will flow rivers of living water. Now notice what he says in verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, future tense, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now we know through studying post-resurrection ministry that the Holy Spirit was given after the resurrection of Christ. But I want you to think back now in the development of progression as John is developing this doctrine here, how that he deals with water as a typology. 
And by the way, I'm not going to take the time to do this, but we could go back in the Old Testament, we could see repeatedly where water is a type of the Holy Spirit. But in John chapter 1, we see the baptism of Christ. In John chapter 2, we see Christ turning water into wine. By the way, this was the latter wine, which turned out to be the better, which is a type of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament over the Old Testament. In John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that he must be born again of water, even the Spirit. In John chapter 4, recall, he told the woman at the well that the thing that is going to thirst what she's searching for is the Holy Spirit, that thing that he can give her. We go on and on and on, and we see this doctrinal development in the book of John. Now, go forward with me. Now, let's go to 1 John, so towards the end of the Bible, 1 John. I want you to notice something in chapter 2, and notice in verse 26 through 27. Here the Word of God says this. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, which I believe he's referring to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now at this point, among New Testament believers that he's writing to, he says in the midst of this intentional deception that false prophets are coming among you to deceive you, he says to them, This anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. In other words, John was so confident in the ministry of the Holy Spirit that even before the completion of the New Testament, all of the words written of the New Testament, he was so confident that he was leading these believers to understand that if they would just put their confidence and trust in the Holy Spirit, they could not be led astray by the false prophets. Now, it gives us some understanding of the context of what he's dealing with. And what we find with John is he's presenting to this, us this idea that there is truth unadulterated. There is no commingling of truth. Sometimes we begin to allow our rational mind to enter into the understanding of doctrine. And we begin to try to force our understanding in such a way that we commingle man's sinful understanding of things upon what God's revealed truth actually is. Notice this in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He says this, This is the message which you, we have heard from him and declare to you, That God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. I could probably say at this point that John is convinced there is no gray area concerning doctrine. He goes on and he says this, God, uh, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So he makes this emphasis on truth. He opens his second small epistle, in 2 John, by saying this in verse 1, The elder to the elect lady and her children, and notice what he says here, Whom I love in truth. He doesn't say, I love you. He wants to be 
very clear that there's an instrument that exists by which his love is manifested to them, and that love is manifested because there is truth, unadulterated. In 3 John, if you'll notice in verse 1, he emphasizes this again, and he says, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. For John, there's something going on for him, and for Christianity at this point in time, where he understands this profound need to point out that there is no gray area when it comes to truth, and it relates to love, God's love specifically. What is going on is that there was a Gnostic heretic by the name of Serenthus that began to distort the truth about the person of Jesus Christ, and John is battling that because he understands the danger of what happens when Christians begin to commingle their doctrine with error. You may recall last year, I'm so thankful for the wisdom of Jimbo and the ability that he has to project out and listen to the Holy Spirit leading him in our studies and what we focus on behind this pulpit. Last year was a study through the book of Acts and then we took the time to go back for context and study the book of Galatians. And you will recall what we found out was that what happened in the early part of Christianity as it began to spread, if we went back to Acts chapter 15, we would see in verse 5 that a sect of Pharisees became believers. That sect of Pharisees could not divorce themselves from the Old Testament law. And so they began to spread this idea That yes, Jesus Christ died on the cross at Calvary. That's our avenue of salvation. But the truth of the matter is, if you want to be a higher caliber Christian, you'll have to submit yourself to circumcision in the Old Testament law. Now we went through this, you may recall, in our study of the book of Galatia. This was the early battle for the apostles. We see this repeated over and over and over again. This man, Serenthus, He's known only to us historically. He's not mentioned in the Word of God. But from the early father, church fathers, what we refer to as historically as church fathers, first, second, third, and fourth century writers, they mention him repeatedly as someone who was an Alexandrian Jew. That may sound familiar to you. Because if you were to go to Acts chapter 18, you would see there was another Alexandrian Jew who was a believer. His name was Apollos. He was a scholar, as all of them were known for their scholarship, and he went to Corinth with a little bit of rationalism mixed into his message. And you may remember that it was Priscilla and Aquila who took him and led him to a better understanding of the application of doctrinal truth. The problem is is that scholars from Alexandria were known for commingling their rationalism into doctrine. Serenthius is known to have written, although we do not have a copy of this, it's referred to by many of the early writers, a gospel of his own. But what most of the testimonies tell us is that what he actually did was he took the gospel of Matthew and he adulterated it in such a way that he took away the idea that that Christ ever had flesh. In other words, his idea of the world, his worldview, if you will, was so 
impregnated by Plato and the idea that the flesh itself was so inherently evil, he could not accept the idea that the divine himself could indwell this sinful flesh. Now, there's a real problem with that, and that's what John is dealing with here. And I want to suggest this to you. In fact, I want you to understand this. A lot of what we're dealing with, with the misunderstanding of the sanctity of life, is related to this idea. Because what that tells us is the flesh is an insignificant mass of flesh. In fact, Plato taught us, you can see this in his writings, that prison of the soul, the spiritual being, was the flesh. One day you're going to be released from this flesh and you're going to be with the divine and the flesh will no longer exist. You may say, well, why do you have such a problem with that? Well, let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to notice in verse 7. Here the Word of God says this, and the Lord God Now notice this, very important. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now get the picture here. God took the physical, formed man physically. He breathed into him the spirit of lives and man became a living soul. Now, i got to tell you, I don't know whether that makes things dichotomous, trichotomous, or whatever it means. That doesn't matter to me. Those are debates that are fought in seminaries and systematic theology. What I find from receiving the Word of God as truth, what I find is that when you take the physical and you add to it the spiritual, you become a living soul. You see that? Oftentimes we refer to Our soul is something we possess. My soul. Or I have a soul. Where will my soul be for eternity? But what the Word of God is saying is you are a soul. Think about that. What if we develop this mindset that the physical aspect of this union is so insignificant that it's just a mass or a tumor that you can disregard at any time? Where does that leave us with the sanctity of life? And I want you to understand that that's the battle that he's dealing with. This problem is brought out, so let's go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 real quickly before we get into our text. 1 John chapter 4. Notice what John writes. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. This was the problem that he's dealing with here. And what exacerbated the problem even more, if you'll go over to chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and notice in verse 18. He says this, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out, notice, 
from us. John is telling them that these false prophets that are going out distorting the idea about the nature of Christ having inhabited in the sense of the virgin birth, the flesh itself, actually came out from them. Paul gives us a little hint to this in 2 Corinthians chapter, I believe it's in chapter 3, where he talks about prophets that were going around with these letters of endorsements. And probably what's going on here is that there were some of these disciples that John had as he was bringing them through a discipleship program. He gave them letters of endorsement. He sent them out, and what he found out later that they had gotten mixed up into this false doctrine that Serentius was spreading around called Gnosticism and distorting this whole message. And the problem is now that John's got to deal with straightening out this problem because it appears as though they were coming out from him. And so he writes this first epistle in general to straighten out this truth. The second epistle he writes, so Second John, he writes to the church to deal with this problem in the sense of the church. And in Third John, what he deals with here is he deals with an example of a godly man who's making this application in his life. Now before we get into the text, I want to show you one other thing. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21. The Word of God tells us here, as Paul is, he's near the end of his life, he's in prison, he says this, he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know what he's done? He's come to this reality that as a believer, hey, He's got an eternity. (laughs) He can live this life in the flesh. He can serve the Lord and, hey, praise Jesus' glory to God. Or he can die and go on to heaven and be in eternity. But notice what he says here. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I mean, he's, he's in a little bit of a bind here. He's in prison. And by the way, he's reaching the other prisoners and the prison guards with the truth of the gospel. He's discipling them. And he knows this. And he says, you know, hey, I've got fruit, and what I would choose I don't really know, but notice in verse 23, for I am hard-pressed between two having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, for me to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Can I say to you this is what it's all about? Man, God is not through with you in any way whatsoever if you are living this life. That's what the sanctity of life is all about. From the moment of that conception, when the union of that physical begins and that spiritual gives life and that becomes a soul, God has plan and purpose and the sanctity of life begins. That's what it's all about. Any distorted idea about this would bring us to a point where we fail to understand the value of one another. There were two brothers the Bible tells us about in Genesis chapter 4. But I want you to see this from 1 John chapter 3. 
Notice the Word of God says this in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Well, the beginning of what? Well, the only conclusion that I can come to is the beginning of the Word of God. That we should love one another. Now notice, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. The Greek word behind murdered here literally is the word that describes the sacrifice. It's the taking of a knife and cutting the neck ear to ear. I'm going to speculate for just a moment. But it seems to me that what John wants us to see is a connection with the manner by which Cain murdered Abel and the manner by which he saw Abel offer up that sacrifice that Abel offered up. In other words, when God confronted Cain, it seems to me that what happened here was Cain mocked God by saying, if you want a bloody sacrifice, I'll give you one. And what he sought to do was to remove or abort the purpose that God had for Abel's life. You see that? That's what we're dealing with here in these three epistles. So if I were to put a proposition on this message, the thing that I want you to see here, now listen to me. All lives matter. That's what it's all about. Now notice in the text, 3 John chapter 1, verse 10. I'm going to read through for you. The Word of God says, verse 1, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. I wrote to the church, now listen, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. I want you to notice, if you will, in verse 1 where he says, whom I love in truth. This preposition in comes from the Greek preposition that literally means by means of. In other words, what he's saying here, as we mentioned just a little while ago, is Gaius, it doesn't really matter to me what you've done, what kind of person you are, how attractive you may be, or how unattractive you are, how clean you may be, how filthy you may be, or whatever it may be, how rich you are, what color of skin you have. The reason why I love you is by means of the truth. That's why I love you, Gaius. Nothing else. 
He uses the term agape, and we receive this contrast between Gaius and his relationship with others and this man Diotrephes. This word putting out, if you'll recall in the verse 10 there, where Diotrephes had come to this point where, hey, if he didn't like you because there was nothing attractive about you that he saw a need for you in his life, whatever prejudices that he may have had against you, his practice was to put you out of the church. Imagine that. By the way, this word putting out literally means to thrust out or to cast out. I would suggest we could use the word abort in this very passage and convey the exact meaning. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine being a part, and I know that you can because I'm sure that some of us have experienced this kind of treatment from others. The idea that God's purpose in your life is over and you no longer belong among us. And so the choice then is made to abort. Man, listen, I am so thankful that I found a church, Redemption Church of Jacksonville, where we're reaching people because we love them. Not because we're trying to exclude them which is what Diotrephes was trying to do. And John wants for us to see a clear contrast between these two. These two professed believers and the means by which they manifest their truth. The Word of God goes on. And in verse 2, the Word of God tells us that there's this recognition of the physical and spiritual prosperity of Gaius. Notice, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, speaking of his physical being, just as your soul prospers. This word prosper means a successful journey. And it refers here to his physical journey. John is saying, hey, I already know about your spiritual destiny. What I'm praying about is your physical destiny in this life. The means by which you progress in this life, growing in Christ, and then manifesting that love of Christ to others. That's what I'm praying about. I'm praying for that kind of health. I'm praying that you're you're healthy physically and you're able to do this. I want to be like Paul when I die. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. I want to be able to say, hey, I am ready to go. You know, I've fought the fight. I've kept the faith. This this is over, and I'm ready to go on. But think about Paul for just a moment. He's in the Mamertine prison. If he were to look around him, he's seeing decaying, rotting, dead flesh all around. The nickname for the Mamertine prison was the sepulcher. Because when a prisoner was let down into that prison, there was no means designed by which you extrapolate them back out. It was a punishment of death that you just went to and died whatever death you would die. The world would look at him and say he's a failure. He started some churches. All of them had doctrinal problems or problems with unity. Right? Nobody will come see him. He's begging Timothy to come see him and he has no penny to his name the world would say he's a failure. And in the midst of all that, Paul has this faith 
that this life he lived in this physical being, God is going to use to do something wonderful. You know, for 300 years, nobody really could regard or see the point of Paul's life. But after 300 years, Christianity began to spread, and those churches that were concentrated on Paul's missionary journeys, those were the ones and those were the areas where the gospel began to spread and the entire Western world's history was changed at that moment in time because a missionary by the name of Paul, some believers in Damascus, shortly after his salvation, believed that God had plan and purpose for his life. They protected him from being killed, let him down at the wall in a basket, and they defended him because they believed that God would do something great in his life. And I'm telling you, if you are here today, you owe the Apostle Paul a thank you when you get to heaven. He went to his church in Jerusalem. You know what I think that Paul was thinking when he went to Jerusalem after he left Damascus? Man, they're going to be thrilled. Listen, I was persecuting these guys. I'm going to show up and I'm going to be, I'm, listen, I'm going to get into that redemption class membership three-week program. I'm going to become a member of this church. They're going to love me because Jesus Christ has done a change in my life. You know the story. You know what happened. He showed up and they said, wait a minute. We don't believe you. One man by the name of Barnabas, he saw that there was purpose that God had in this man, Saul. And he invested his life in him. You know, we could go through this over and over again, and I'm so thankful for the whole church of Antioch and what they saw as potential in his life. That's what we're in the business of. We're in the business of somebody walking through that door that has nothing about their physical being that would tell us that there's any reason to believe that God's got any purpose for their life. But when we turn to this word of God and it teaches us that God loves them and he has purpose for them because they were created, that's our job, to invest ourselves into their lives. The word of God goes on in verses 3 through 4 and says this, For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I wish I had time to develop this. I don't. But I want you to see there are three aspects of Gaius' life that John wants to highlight. He had truth. In other words, he had a biblical worldview. He manifested that truth in a walk physically and spiritually into this life. And he had a relationship. Children, and he had a relationship with this church. Let me tell you, those are the three things that you need to focus on in your life. You need to focus on whether or not you're turning to the Word of God and developing a biblical worldview. You need to manifest that biblical worldview into this world, finding God's purpose for your life and glorifying Him with it. And you need to form relationships with fellow believers who will encourage you in the truth and how you manifest truth into this life. Now remember, 
what John was saying. I want you to be prosperous. And so here's what I recognize about you, and I want to encourage you to keep this going on. That's what it's all about. What we tend to do then is we begin to superimpose into our lives other things. Science, rationale, Hollywood, whatever it may be, and it begins to distort those three things that God wants us to have in our life. The Word of God goes on in verses 5 through 7, and notice, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward or when you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. What we believe was going on here is some of those missionaries that John was sending out to combat this distortion of truth Gaius was taking, and he was sending them forward. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, whether it was monetarily or whether he was giving them a place to stay or whether he was giving them provisions. But what John wants us to understand and what he wants Gaius to be encouraged about is Gaius was actively participating in the ministry that involved getting these who were being sent forward with the truth to the Gentiles to combat this distortion that was being spread by Gnosticism about Jesus Christ. And now I want you to see verse 8. Why did he do it? Why did Gaius define his life this way? Verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. I'm going to put it this way. When I ask the question, why? Why did Gaius do this? I'm going to go back to a man by the name of Noah. For 40 years, never having seen a drop of rain in his life, for 40 years, Noah built an ark. Now, now get this mental picture. Could you imagine his kids coming home from school, getting off the school bus, and there's this great big ark being built in the backyard. Nobody's ever seen rain. It's nowhere near the ocean. And the humility that that brought into the lives of those children. Now, I, I know they didn't have school buses back then. Noah did something so incredibly irrational. Why? Because God told him to. There was coming a flood. And those that would trust God's manner of salvation would be saved. Why did Abraham forsake Ur of the Chaldees and move to a wilderness? You know, I don't know if you've ever studied Ur of the Chaldees, but it was the place to live back in the day. I've read historical books about the excavations there and the mansions that existed that we believe that Abraham probably lived in. And can you imagine, Sarah, what she must have thought when God intervened into their lives and called them to go to a place where she would dwell the rest of her life in a tent? Why? Because God had plan and purpose for you and me and Abraham was involved in it. Why did Joshua lead a bunch of slaves and wilderness dwellers into fight battles with warriors in the promised land. Because God had plan and purpose for us. Why did Gaius do it? 
because God loves you. That's why. Why did Jesus Christ go up on the cross of Calvary and give his life as a ransom for our sin? Because God has purpose for you and me. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.